This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. Today's episode is all about Midnight Sky. Come in, Ether. This is Barbo Observatory. Are you receiving this? Is anyone out there? This is Ether. Does anyone copy? We're not receiving anything. I'm Andrew, and with me today are... Midnight Thai Singh. <laughs> uh, Tushna. And... Steve. Can I just point out that it's called The Midnight Sky because we have movie people on the podcast? You certainly can. And since you've said that, why don't you tell us who we've got on the podcast, Steve? <laughs> so we have uh, Jim Bissell, who is the production designer for Midnight Sky, uh, along with uh, a, a rather illustrious career before that with loads of movies you've heard of. Uh, and we have Professor Ben Hicks, who is uh, the head of the Engineering Systems and Design Institute and the Design and Manufacturing Futures Lab at the University of Bristol. That is all coming later in the podcast. Steve, uh, Jim Bissell, you can't just say, oh, he's done some films you've heard of. Production design on E.T., for crying out loud. <laughs> E.T., 300, with the Rocketeer. Oh, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Jim Bissell coming later on this episode of the cosmic shed so um before we go any further ty tell us about well, the, the midnight sky is the latest film from actor director and all-round handsome man george clooney um and it's based on the 2016 novel good morning midnight by lily brooks dalton um it got a limited theatrical release but mainly debuted on christmas day was it i think on netflix and it stars as well as Handsome Man Clooney, Felicity Jones, David Yellowo, uh, Ethan Peck, Tiffany Boone, and Kyle Chandler. Um, if you haven't seen the film, we're going to... How light on spoilers are we going to be? We'll probably do some spoilers. We'll probably do some spoilers. So basically, an uh, unidentified catastrophe has engulfed the planet Earth and wiped out most of the population. Why is it so quiet? That's either. It's a spaceship that we hoped would be our future. I have to warn them about the conditions on Earth. I don't know all the details. It started with a mistake. There is an antenna that's stronger than ours. We get to that antenna, they'll hear us. So I went into the film sort of expecting to not like it. Space people were tweeting. People like Phil Plate, the bad astronomer. People who work for SpaceX. People who work for NASA. People who work for the European Space Agency. And almost exclusively, they were negative about the film. And I think I liked it more than, than, than I thought I was going to. And uh, I like it even more having heard um, the interview that Steve's done with Jim Bissell, which we'll hear later in the podcast. But... Um, it was one of those films where I'm watching it and I'm thinking, ah, Toshna's gonna, Toshna's gonna be blowing a top here because, I mean, where's this moon come from? Right, so Toshna, how do you feel about the film? <laughs> well, I think, I think I want to start by saying that I, 
I didn't completely hate the film. I, I liked it a lot more than, say, um, Ad Astra, which I'm sure everyone who's a regular listener of Cosmic Show knows my feelings about that film. So it was way better than that. <laughs> I didn't hate it. I mean, I, I liked it. I didn't feel like um, watching it was like a total waste of time. But I was a bit more eh with it, <laughs> you know. Um, in terms of the sort of scientific issues, well, um, Personally, I, I never like it when there's global world-ending catastrophe and you never find out exactly what's happened and it's very vague. Um, but that's a plot device, so I can I can almost allow for that. But I kind of they they mention something that seems to have happened in the last two days, so it seems quite quick. And they mention um ionizing radiation, which is a very specific sort of radiation that genuinely comes from you know, um, things like nuclear attacks, etc. if we're talking about it in vast quantities, but they seem to suggest that this is something a bit more natural, because at some point George Clooney's character says, we haven't taken care of the planet. So, you know, there's a bit of woo there in terms of what exactly happened, that it's exceeded to these points, that it's wiped out the, you know, majority of the human race in a matter of days. So there's that slight issue. Um, but genuinely, the, the main, I guess, potential scientific pitfall is this this planet uh, and and it's rather confusing because they refer to it as a planet at some point but then they're very clear that it's a moon of Jupiter um and we're, we're led to believe that George Clooney's character is he's, he's some sort of double hero he keeps saving the planet um because he saved the planet by finding this alternative earth apparently all by his lonesome um somehow you know with the uh, 79 moons of jupiter that we already know and identify he found 80 and it was the golden one apparently um and yeah i think we're led to believe that this moon of jupiter is almost it's a, it has a it's a terrestrial planet it has not an ice surface but um, I think we're meant to believe that there's some sort of forests on it and things like that. I mean, that again, it could have been that um, it's just kind of, I think we see Felicity's character dreaming about it and then just d describing it. So maybe that's a bit more, again, not the reality of what it is. But yeah, the idea that there's this new moon of Jupiter that somehow is sitting in a habitable zone and that we can use as planet B is really quite far-fetched. Also, it's rather confusing that they, they named it K23, whereas, you know, most of the moons of Jupiter have lovely names <laughs> already. Um, and I think the K23, they were trying to make it sound like it was a Kepler object, but there's no reason why we'd be using the Kepler Space Telescope to look at something in our own solar system. So yeah, I guess that's the main premise that, you know, there's a potential issue with. So what exactly was it, the, the natural phenomena that wiped out all of humanity in two days using ionizing radiation and then the problems of this habitable moon on you know somewhere near Jupiter that we could just easily get to oh also there was the thing that they keep mentioning that they've been away for two years but that seems a bit weird too because again we're talking 2049 so I don't think they have an antimatter you know space ship um so I mean the shortest journey you can have to Jupiter is two years, and that's if all the orbits are perfectly aligned and everything's, you know, perfect, etc. So I'm not sure if the two years maybe just refers to the return journey, but they seem to be out of contact for about two years. And then the idea of setting up this entire alternative world there, it's a little bit problematic.
It is. I, you know, it's funny because not uh, although all of those things are, are entirely valid, none of them really bothered me too much in the film. I would. I think the thing is that it's really, really, really hard to make a film in the middle of a global pandemic, and I think what they've done is make a good science fiction film <laughs> in the middle of a global pandemic, and I'm and I'm okay with that. That's a good thing. I think that it is one of the criticisms that a lot of people were tweeting was that it's slow and boring. And I don't think it is. In fact, I think it could possibly be more slower and effectively more boring. I think it could be a more considered portrait of characters, but it mess, it sort of feels the need to, and maybe it's legitimate, have these action sequences, which sort of got in the way a bit for me. Not too much, but they weren't sort of a space monkey on a, on a ship on the way. Oh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. I was going to say there were at least no space monkeys. Exactly. I think, to be honest, my main issues with the film were not, again, necessarily the scientific issues that I just described. Um, potentially what bothered me most was um, the titular character, starting with his, can I just say it, the most ridiculous name I have ever heard, Augustine Lofthouse. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? 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 I mean, did his parents not like him? <laughs> I'm not sure. But I, I think I think really my, my issue with the film, or maybe what I didn't quite enjoy as much, is that it feels like it's 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 very indulgent. That's how I can describe it best. I feel like George Clooney has been very, very indulgent. Indulgent in the story he's trying to tell, indulgent in all the different themes he's tried to squeeze in, indulgent in his own character. I mean, a couple of spoilers here, I guess. But so he's this world famous, world saving astronomer who seems to have single handedly found this new moon. Um, he then is on this Arctic base, decides to stay behind by himself. Oh, did we mention he's also dying, but he wants to save the planet and save his daughter and 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 so it just feels like someone should have told him to kill a few of his darlings here i yes. feel like i think that's what it was there was too much and and the whole sort of father-daughter story going on and his potential um i'd like hollywood to get away from this idea of lone geniuses and that just keeps coming up i don't know why like i don't know why hollywood thinks that it's really one scientist doing this thing it's you know, there's got to be at least five of them. They're never going to write a paper otherwise. Trust me. Yeah. You know, there's there's got to be a couple of PhD students knocking around in the lab somewhere too before anything really gets discovered. And so this idea of this one person, I think that's probably what was a bit more annoying to me. So I haven't read the book, so I don't know how much of the story critique there was was in the in the book and how much of the science was in the book and, and what's, what's down to uh, the author and what's down to... Uh, Clooney and, and team. I think a lot of the the main points that Tushner raised are ported over from the book by Lily Brooks Dalton. So the lone hero teamed up with a girl coming back from Jupiter, all of that is in the book. So, you know, I think George Clooney faithfully adapting a book. Did you enjoy the film? I did. However, you know, I am someone who enjoys Star Trek, the slow motion picture. As <laughs> most often derided. So I think I think a lot of the criticism of the film might have come from that this was Netflix's big Christmas release. And it is not the 
you know, fun family adventure that something like The Martian is or something like Gravity might have been. And I think it might have been promoted to be of that ilk. And it definitely is, I don't want to say derivative, but reminiscent of those films in many ways. So if you're settling down with the family for Christmas and you're watching this long meditative study about being alone, confronting your past trauma, and also humanity once again destroying the planet, possibly through some sort of climate change prevention method that's gone wrong, Alice Snowpiercer or something, then, then yes, I'm sure you'll be a little bit knocked. Um, I found it quite enjoyable. I, 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 I enjoyed it. I liked where it went. I mean, it was a bit bleak when I was watching it, but hey, there, there is a time and a place for meditative sci-fi and it like you said it wasn't as uh, self-indulgent as ad astra where he has to go to the farthest reaches of space just to confront how he misses his dad um so i i thought i thought it was a good at least directorial um output by george clooney the action scenes i thought were great i liked the design of the spaceship i i, I love a lot of things about it um but I think the more sombre nature of the film might have just put a lot of people off. As for the kind of the complaints about where the science in this science fiction might have gone wrong, I, I would like to know more about those complaints because from my point of view, I can't see how it did anything different from other science fiction films like The Martian and Gravity have done before. Sure, a nice habitable moon where Felicity Jones seems to be wandering around in the grass you know, looking over Jupiter, I was like, what? Is this meant to be a moon of Jupiter? This is odd. But yeah. again, it, it was just the, this is a sci-fi film. I'll let some things go. One thing I did love about the film is the way that it looked. And we're going to hear about a man very heavily involved in making the film look the way it did. Jim Bessel. But first, Steve, what did you think of it? I think... My reaction to this movie surprised me. I don't know if it surprised you. You know me and my movie tastes. You know me and my my science uh, opinions. Um, I completely agree with the the sort of science fact criticism, Jupiter Moon, um, all of that sort of thing. The that I was a little bit frustrated. Um, about the sort of nebulous nature of the global disaster. Um, Jim mentions that. It's the last question I asked him, trying to get a nugget of information. Um, but in my head, there's a really clear separation in this movie between the science, the engineering, which I'll come on to, and the sort of artistic side of the movie. And Again, if you know me, I'm I'm not a huge sort of art house cinema fan. I I I'm definitely less well watched than others on this podcast, um, and I have my favourite sort of genres. But this movie really did something for me. It I, I don't know if it's because of the parallels between how I'm feeling about lockdown, things like that, um, or. or, or the uh, environmental preserve the planet side of things, which which connects with me a great deal, or the um, <laughs> the daddy issues that George Clooney uh, obviously uh, sort of has from 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 that end of things. Um, 
but it 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 really moved me it was a a beautiful movie from the sort of connection between earth and space um and and, and all, all the other things i think i think i would say in my opinion uh if if you're too hung up on criticizing the science and uh and and that draws you away from from the other parts of that movie then you're watching it wrong mm-hmm. and that really surprised me because um normally i'm i'm much more intuitionist camp mm. on this well that's good it's a good thing right i th- i think um i i'm always interested to know why that's happened and why sometimes we let it give it a pass and sometimes we don't um mm. Well, I'm not going to go into any daddy issues, yeah. but uh, certainly the, the, there's 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 probably some resonance between the movie and, and where we are right now. And I, I can see how maybe some people don't like that, but I, I really did like it. Steve, what was the um, what, what appealed to you in terms of the sort of more of the relationship that we're supposed to maybe maybe we find that out a bit too late? in the film, shall we say, without completely giving everything away. But I found that that was, again, one of those things that I always, like, I think people love exploring this sort of, you know, parents in space or parent-child relationships <laughs> separated across vast distances. But I always find the take on it to be a bit lacking, mainly because there's a lot of other things going on in these films. So what worked for you so much in this case that as you say, Paulie didn't work in other films like Ad Astra or even, uh, you know, even something like um, Interstellar, maybe, which again has a strong. Mm. I, I reckon uh, one of the things that I really like with it, it, it was kind of unashamedly contemplative in in, in a way. It, I I asked Jim if sort of he considered it a hard sci-fi movie because I think certainly in terms of the spaceship, there was a lot of thinking done there. Um, Again, that's that's to come uh, in in my interview with Jim, um, but 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 actually it it was very much more human focused. Um, and, and and actually that um, I think I need to go and watch it again after uh, talking to Jim Bissell because there's there's some things again the more kind of abstract stuff in there that I I want to go in with my eyes open to. So maybe we can do that, Andrew. Yeah, let's do that. And I think you've set it up now. We're just going to have to go to this interview. And I, I know that everybody listening will love this as much as I did when Steve sent it to me. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Jim. The film is is, uh, is a little bit odd in that it's not action-adventure. It's not uh, apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic. Well, it is apocalyptic, but it's not, it's not one of these um, uh, dark movies that show somebody's adventure during the apocalypse it's uh it's more of a meditation and it's a meditation on death and a meditation on what we've done with our lives and what we've done with our planet and what hope there may be uh it's uh it's odd that way and uh, and and as a result when i first started consulting with the director george clooney uh he knew he didn't want us to use a familiar visual vocabulary for the spacecraft. He wanted to to explore something different and I'm all on board for that. And I think uh, that was the thing that prompted us in the direction that we went, which was to really examine the realities of of what is, uh, uh, what are the problems of long-term space flight? And and how do those start to reflect in the overall spacecraft design? And, And how do we come up with something that hasn't been seen before? 
that also resonates with the thematic content of the film. Uh, I found myself entering into a world that was fascinating. And the the, the setting uh, is, is in the not too distant future. Am I am I right in that? Yeah, it's supposed to be like around 2050, 2049. Uh-huh. The 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 design of of the ether, the, the spacecraft, and 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 of a lot of the um, the other tech that we see uh, both in the in the Arctic basin and uh, and and on the spacecraft seems feasible with kind of modern modern technology i i think a lot of people have said that it's it's more the will than the tech that we're we're lacking at the moment in terms of space exploration mm-hmm. but the ether itself is a a long slender kind of truss structure down the down the axis with modules that that look like they've been stuck together but then there's this um fantastic pair of booms sticking out with with the habitat and and science uh pods on 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 the end mm-hmm. um what did you go through to to come up with the the overall kind of layout, the architecture of the the spacecraft? Well, I I first went to see what had been explored and started. I think where uh, where Arthur Max started for the Martian. Uh, you know, the, there's a 2011 design out of NASA called um, the Nautilus, and the Nautilus design is basically that, which is a modular axis down the center where you, you know, you've got sort of different modules pieced together on a, on a central axis. And then uh, the Nautilus addresses the whole issue of, of uh, mimicking dra- gravity for long-term space flight by having sort of a Werner von Braun wheel, a torus spinning about. And I think, you know, when, when you look at the practicalities of using the torus, which is, you know, it's sort of part of our vocabulary. We, we say, all right, long-term weightlessness is really bad on the human body. Uh, and so how are we going to address that when we take two and three year, you know, space voyages to Mars or wherever we go? And that's a problem. You know, first of all, getting the material up into space to build something that extensive. And it has to be really extensive because it has to be so the radius either has to be really long or it has to spin really fast. And and then you have uh, you have issues that, uh, you know, when you have something spinning like that, it affects navigation. And you can compensate for it, but if you have people moving masses moving around inside, then that's a real problem, <laughs> because even then that that affects navigation. And the and the other uh, aspect to long term spacecraft, I mean space voyages, is, is radiation, uh, which is really quite lethal to human existence. So I looked at what we have. I think you know the over. There's a lot of wisdom in the overall design of the Nautilus with the central axis and the and the thrusting at the at the rear, and then being able to sort of in modules put greenhouses and and storage containers and things that, that can exist in weightlessness. But how do we how do we address creating artificial gravity through the use of centrifugal force? And for that, I came up with sort of a strange synthesis of emerging technologies and emerging construction techniques, which would be inflatable habitats combined with topological optimization. The idea being that you have, you know, develop certain fabrics and you can layer these fabrics and they can contain the atmosphere. So you have big bags of gas sailing around and that you have some sort of lightweight endoskeleton and exoskeleton that supports it, keeps it from flying off into space. And also the endoskeleton is the thing that in a very lightweight way addresses the, the platforms that the uh, that the astronauts move around on, and uh, 
and they're, as they're surrounded by this bag of gas. Um, so all the interior uh, structures that they're in their habitats and uh, uh, everything else should be very, very lightweight. And, you know, and, and so we came up with this, we, in the beginning I did, but, uh, but I was just thinking about it. And as, as I came up with the idea of using a baton instead of a torus, less material, and you can extend the radius longer and get better gravity, you know, get better uh, centrifugal force as it spins around. Um, I also thought, well, at the tip there, you, there's a possibility of spreading it out just a little bit so you get more use out of the uh, area and, uh, and can create a, a sort of interesting uh, living habitat. What emerged was, was something that was really something I hadn't expected. You know, first of all, the exoskeleton, if you, if you do it, a real lightweight one that let's, let's just say was 3D printed on the moon using moon materials. And, and after you've calculated what this exoskeleton needs to look like, you know, topological op optimization is so organic looking. And uh, it, it looks a little bit like, you know, between the use of these, uh, these hybrid fabrics that they developed that sort of protect the uh, astronauts from radiation, as well as uh, sort of containing the atmosphere, what you wind up with is this sort of strange-looking, almost clipper-ship-like, you know, with sails and and uh, and it just it just feels really interesting. And then it's like the rigging is this uh, is designed by Gaudi. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, uh, Gaudi on acid. You know, it's it's uh, it's really really uh, odd-looking, but I think very relatable. It's. Uh, I, I just love the way it started evolving. And, and then this is something that happens in dramatic design, obviously, uh, which will not happen when they're actually designing the spacecraft, which is you start seeing things that, that really start to address exactly what the movie is all about. The movie is about life. The movie is about will life go on? The, the movie is about how fragile life is and how we have to really pay attention. And what you wind up with are these big bags of gas circulating, you know, rotating around a central axis, which is pretty much what our planet is. And, and then the whole process of life, you know, you, you look at this, this central, the, the central bag, which is where, you know, most of the living spaces are. And then on the other end of the baton, that's where the, uh, uh, the, the navigation and, uh, you know, the command center is. That larger bag surrounded by these sort of two Mickey Mouse ears, you look at it from one perspective, it looks like, you know, uh, a penis with two testicles. And you look at it from another perspective, and it's, it's, a, it's a uterus with the, uh, the, the ovary sacs. You know, it's very subliminal, but it's there. It's very sexual. It's, it's very organic. And it's, uh, and it's about what it's about. It's, that's what this whole thing is about. That's what life is about procreation, survival, and taking care of your environment. Uh, yeah, I was just so excited as that started to develop. I just thought, oh my God, this is really, really pretty damn wonderful. And, and, and it's feasible. You know, I, listen, I don't, I don't think anybody's going to say that that's what uh, topological optimization exoskeletons will actually look like, but they could, you know. And, and the other thing that was really interesting was if you have this in, endoskeleton, and the end exoskeleton that's top, topologically optimized. As the astronauts move around inside the uh, inside inside on this fl these floors, you can have sensors on the floors that know where they are at all times and slightly re 
the the skeleton itself can adjust for where they are so that they, their their mass movement doesn't affect navigation there's some some detail engineering that i want to i want to pick your brains on 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 there as well but i i i think it would be remiss to dive straight into that without acknowledging the fact that the film is beautiful it's it's visually um wonderful and deep and engaging uh, and and then like you said there's these these overtones that that connect and i i, I confess as a as an engineer i uh, I, I often kind of pass over those things, but but it, it's really lovely to acknowledge that and, and, and to hear you hear you say that. There, there were a few sort of engineering aspects that that, that struck me, both from the the, the fabric uh, and, and the inflatable sort of habitable module design. Uh, it was really evident when they had the impacts on the outside, and, and those ripples on the inside were were really clear. The uh, the, the generative topologically optimized d- d- design really jumped out at me as something that I think we're we're seeing more of in 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 the modern world um currently but I I think we're only just beginning uh to to bring it into uh sort of large scale real world applications it was really nice to see that um in in in, in your vision my colleague uh professor ben hicks uh who who I'm going to talk to about the the engineering side of it he he leads um a manufacturing uh, research group uh he he was asking he he said he could he could throw some of his tools at it and 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 see how his optimizers come out and and had a few questions about masses and loading and things like that so um no no pressure but um i i've done some some measurements from the, the, there's a lovely sort of plan view uh that i found that that's got a scale on it so we've we've got some dimensions um but in terms of other parameters the did 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 you intend for the the astronauts to be experiencing one G or um, less than that in in their uh, in, in their living quarters? I haven't measured the angular rotation yet. I might do some freeze frames. It's a, it's all a G. It's all a yeah, G. It's okay, all a G. Cool. And there's a couple of other things you should you should be aware of. I mean, you know, for for cinematic. Uh, I was going to say it did, did look like they were acting in one G. Yeah. Well, that's because it's just too hard to have everything be a visual effect yeah. and or, or to put them on you know springs or you know, come up with some sort of cheesy way of slowing things down. And that would, that would affect the audience too. Uh, mm. That it may not, it may, may not, it may, we may be at cross purposes with the drama. You know, the, the, my, my job was to basically give us an environment where you felt like, okay, there, there's artificial gravity there. So that's why the actors can act like that. Well, you, you just don't like so many, uh, so many like sunshine, for instance, or, uh, uh, you know, a lot of space movies just assume everybody took a gravity pill. You know, it's it, they just don't address it. You know, it's some, somehow, sometime in the future, people have come up with a solution for gra- uh, artificial gravity, and we don't know what it is, but that's what they do. And, and I, I want, I actually wanted to address that. I wanted to say, no, you know, let's. Let, what would what would we actually do? And the only way to to uh, to mimic gravity is through centrifugal force. That's it. I don't think there's any any other way unless unless you come up with something. Not, not that I've heard of. It's would you call this hard sci-fi in the the tech and the the visuals? It's it's not quite The Martian in the detailed kind of numerical calculations exposed for everyone to see. Certainly in the in the book. Um, you know, what's what's interesting to me about The Martian, say, you know, is we use a, a visual vocabulary that everybody's used to. Like you say, space flight. Just by saying flight, you think about airplanes. 
But, you know, you don't need a cockpit for a spaceship. It's not like you really have to see where you're going in front of you because you're going that way anyhow. It doesn't make any difference. That's that's where you're going. And and the, the whole thing, like, you know, with uh, with using World War II spacecraft uh, airplanes as a, as a model for Star Wars and that sort of thing, you don't go around doing that in space. You know, it doesn't happen. And, uh, and, and so I wanted to really, sort of, especially since it's a meditation, it's about sort of charting a course and staying with it. I wanted to say, well, this is really the way it would be, you know, it would, or, or it's, it's sort of could be something like this, because there's a couple of things that you should be aware of when, when you calculate it. No, it's not full 1G, you know, with the radius, with the radius and the spin rate, it's probably somewhere closer to 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7. But I'd be interested to see what your engineer uh, friend comes up with. Uh, the other thing is, too, is, you know, it's like uh, in 2001, you know, when we had that wonderful shot where he's jogging in artificial gravity. You know, the reality is, given the radius of that particular torus, uh, he'd be constantly crashing into the right side of the ship. Because, you know, you're also moving forward. And so it's a spiral. And that's that's where we also cheated when when you go, go on the ladder and you go up. I actually really wanted to, to curve the ladder because as you're moving up, you're moving away from centrifugal force more to the lateral thrusting force. And you wouldn't just go into weightlessness and then sail in. You would actually get pinned against one side of the, uh, of the baton. But, you know, that was something that our, my director, George Clooney, just said, you know, let's do something that looks cool. I don't want to be constricted by the science here. And I, you know, I, I, I tip my head to that and say, yeah, yeah, it does look cool. You know, they climb the ladder and then sail off and that's cool, but that's not the way it would be. Where, where in your process does the, does the science sit? Obviously you've, you've, you've got a wide range of uh, skills and roles needed for this. Do you, do you have scientists and engineers to to call on for this is or is, is this all kind of from from your own research it's pretty much from my own research i, I you know i we had a, a scientist a german scientist who was a consultant on the the uh on the martian and as well as on life which was another you know space movie um we were using him primarily for doing the calculations for the orbit, for the slingshot maneuver and, and all of that, and what would be on, this, on the monitors. But I ran the design by him and just said, what do you think of this? And he said, oh, that could work. Uh, and that was all I really wanted, was something that could work, something that sort of gave a sense of veracity, that we really considered the details of what, you know, what might actually be and what could be. And, and create, uh, you know, an environment that basically helped us tell the story. The other aspects, too, uh, were, were some of the research that I did into, you know, long-term space travel. They don't have, you know, you look at the ISS and the astronauts spend most of their time looking out at Earth. That's, you know, that's how they ground themselves. And if you're doing deep space, you're not looking at Earth. You know, you, I think everybody has to really confront the fact that no matter how well trained these people are for two, a two and a half, three year voyage, you could go quite mad. Uh, and, and that's what the interior designs are all about is they're soft, they're neutral, they're, they're grounding. There's uh, you know, there's the use of color and the use of, uh, of actual, you know, haptic uh, devices to make sure that people feel like they're living. And then, and then, then the use of this VR room where everybody has, 
an event or a couple of events that help them ground themselves whenever they start really losing it. You know, that's one approach. It's really nice to hear that that you've, you've gone on on the science side, you've gone beyond what the movie represents. You're, you're aware of all the sort of compromises you've made on the, the creative side with those Coriolis forces and things. And I'm, I'm sure there's, there's thousands more um, kind of little things, but it's it's really nice to to hear about the, the homework that you've done on the, the engineering side. It, it seems like there's kind of two different regimes of design um, that, that jump out at me. There's there's the um, the boom, the baton, um, which, which seems quite organic. Um, uh, and then there's the kind of cellular structures of the the shield and the the solar array. Um, how, how did the the kind of structures of those emerge? They were they were in in the script, um, and um, and those are those are a little bit more of a cheat, uh, you know, in the sense that I didn't want a big shield in back of the uh, of the baton that basically obscured the look into the where the greenhouses are and everything else. As the design of the space spaceship evolved, you know what I what I found was I, I was responding to it on a sort of visceral level. I I didn't want that kind of heavy industrial look like the Nostromo and Alien, you know, like an warship or or even the the the, the ship in Sunshine or you know all of these big massive industrial looking ships that you're sort of used to seeing in a lot of space movies first of all you know they're impractical how do you get all that material up in the space in the first place you know it's crazy the other thing though the, and far more important to me was you know back to the, the the thematic material which is the fragility of life that what we started looking at was something that looked and had the feel of the resilience of a dragonfly you know, a, a dragonfly is an extraordinary pilot, a, a flyer, and but it looks like all you have to do is sneeze on it and it'll blow apart, but it doesn't. I love these shields, and 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 the cheat is, of course, you know, we mimicked sort of that that sort of topologically optimized uh, aesthetic, and 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 put you know clear panels, ceramic panels in there, so you can see through. And uh, and then we sort of faked this uh, this the front front one that sort of was ostensibly there to protect the communications antenna, but it's all basically for the uh, story point. When uh, in the original script in the original book, uh, when the uh, one character is injured, uh, she's uh, she basically punctures her suit and and succumbs to uh, lack of oxygen. But that's that was already done in Gravity. And George wanted to find some other way, and so we wanted to put something there that was, you know, brutally assaulted by this debris field and uh, and fell apart. And it was, you know, it was a small piece of debris that caused the problem. And so, you know, it it's really designed just to look cool. I don't know that it would actually be that way. <laughs> so, uh, so that that's a that's a concession to you know, dramatic license and trying to make something look good. But the, the the inside and outside of the um, the baton um, uh, that 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 seems more kind of the the way that certainly my colleagues' work comes out with when when they're doing the the optimized designs was were there any calculations on that or or is it a, a, a visual construct? It's just a visual construct. I, I would, you know, cool. What would it look like? So so I can't wait to see what they come up with. I'll uh, I'll, I'll let you know what he what he comes out with. On on that there was there was one more question I had on the. 
um, the, the the mass of the the thing. So uh, we, we've got a complement of five um, plus plus kit. Did did you did, give give Ben a a number to work with in, in terms of the the tonnage of of the the science kit on, on on each end of that boom? I think the whole point is to make that uh, both the skeleton endoskeleton exoskeleton look as lightweight as possible. You can sort of see it also in the in the floor patterns. Uh, there's a lot of honeycomb in the floor patterns and that's, you know, to, to mm. make it look as lightweight as possible. And then on the, ex, on the exterior at the, at the base, that's where all the uh, rebreathing uh, uh, paraphernalia is for uh, oxygen processing, waste processing. Uh, I don't know how much that would weigh. I just wanted to make it look light. No worries. We'll, we'll take, we'll take a guess. The other sort of uh, tech that's, that's quite notable uh, and, and, and sort of key to some of the, the plot points is the, the 3D printing. I, I had actually wanted to put in the in the basement workshop a 3D printer that you know that they use for all of this stuff, and uh, and that's how, how they constantly regenerated a lot of parts during the long voyage. And uh, you know what you what you have to uh, realize is that you know we don't have very much time to design these things and and put them out there. Um, the, I started I think in early April, and we were shooting by uh, we were shooting by October. And in the course of doing that, also, there were some real severe changes, one of them being that we found out that Felicity uh, Jones was pregnant. And there were a lot of changes. So we, we sort of shifted over exactly that, that, uh, that basement lab and, and turned it into, you know, almost a, like a medical uh, area where she finally gets her, her ultrasound sort of thing. And Cool. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting sort of hot topic at the moment with both sort of 3D printing assembled components and printing in microgravity and things like that just got got me thinking a lot but uh um yeah it sounds it sounds like a sensible I was thinking the same thing that we should have 3D printers you know obvious all around and that there's pro- probably it's probably uh material that was taken from the moon and uh and used where do you sit in terms of the the f- production on, on on the filming side of things I I I'd be really interested in hearing a bit about how you filmed, for example, the um, the crew going up and down inside the um, the baton, and uh, uh, they they sort of fly through the middle and, and land quite nicely on on uh, on each end. Was, was that CG or were there any practicals or they got the the vomit comet that sort of thing people use? Yeah, no, it was it was practical in the sense that we built it, built it uh, as a tube. And the rigging, all the wires were at the top, and so the and then there was an open end so that we could get a camera in and track with them as they as they climbed and then started sailing. Uh, so those are uh, and then uh, uh, some of the stuff was um, I think I think that was probably a twenty twenty five foot long set. It looks quite fun, and there's there's some really nice kind of following shots. And the circular lights are supposed to have lights that sort of basically are visual clues as to how much gravity there is there so you can adjust to it uh you know it's got a sensor on it so that it sort of measures the amount of centrifugal force and uh and and tells you what you should be anticipating as you're coming up towards more gravity or as you're going away from it oh that's nice i'm gonna have to go back and rewatch that now Mm -hmm. Um, not quite sure if we actually followed through with it but that, that was the intent with those circles of light it's cracking. You know, if if you look at both of the environments, both on the the uh, the functional side and then on the the personal side, you know, the the 
there's one, one side is, is where they live, where they eat, and then they commute to work, <laughs> you know, going through the baton. And that's where the, navi- the, the command center is, and that's where their different labs and, and uh, work areas are. When you look at the, those, those lightweight floors and then look at the, uh, the support structures, those slide around. They're modular. And then you can take research modules and plug them in, depending on how you want to use the space. So you can just be aware of that as, as you're looking at it, especially you know when you go into um, uh, Felicity Jones uh, Communications. You can see how the, the, uh, the, the communication modules are all modular. But if you wanted to take that into a different uh, space, you'd probably go to the storage area and get some other kind of scientific module out and also there's a dumbwaiter designed into the baton. You know, it's very low tech. You know, you just climb in and out and that's how you get out to get out to the, there's no, you know, transport beam me up or anything like that. It's you just climb a ladder and then you go to weightlessness and you, and you flip over in the center and then climb down. But there's also a, uh, um, a dumbwaiter it's just sort of a flat dumbwaiter that's also employed to uh, to help retrieve things from storage and bring them into the the different modules. So you just be aware of that when you're looking at the overall design. Um, and and then we haven't really talked about the the Arctic bases. Well, that's less scientific. I mean, uh, you're as a scientist, you would know you don't build a space observatory, I mean, a, a telescope in the Arctic, <laughs> you know, you, you, you know, you, first of all, you, you open it up to balance, uh, uh, balance the temperature from the, to the inside and, you know, and the, and the big mirror is filthy because it's blowing dust and it, you just wouldn't do it. But, but that's the way it is in the book and that's the way it is in the script. And it's like, well, the thing that's really interesting to me on a more, on a more psychological level is it looks like his head, you know, and, and that means that we're craw- crawling inside of Augustine's head, you know, it, it, and, and his head is all about data processing and it's, and it's cold outside and he, and it sort of reflects who he is at the beginning of the whole reflective process of his life. So it's, it's far more psychological imagery than it is, you know, like the spaceship, which is sort of trying to really address, what these people would do on long-term space voyages, but uh, but but at the same time, I did uh, I did try to sort of uh, imitate to a degree some of the real contemporary design that's going on down in the Antarctic, and uh, and make it just feel like you know a good research station that that's slightly in the future. What's the incident? What what's going on down on Earth? What's what's the disaster? It, there's some sort of clues, but it's it's probably deliberately vague. It is deliberately vague only because that's that's a whole movie right there. And it has nothing to do with the plot. It has nothing to do really with our emotional progression. It just it's just that we didn't pay attention and we fucked it up. <laughs> and so uh and and in order to sort of show things data and everything else, I mean my my overall feeling was that, you know, it was a dog pile. It was Global warming probably led to mass migrations, led to political instability, led to somebody getting a hold of a nuclear stockpile. And you might even have some thawing, you know, some sort of pandemic raging because of uh, 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 pathogens released through a thawing tundra. And 
you know, it's just a whole bunch of stuff and it's just turned to shit. Uh, George is very fond of uh, an early 1960s movie, On the Beach, with uh, Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner. It's about the end of the world and a U.S. submarine that's down in Australia, which is the last place before uh, before radiation starts killing everybody down there. And so that sort of reflects his fondness for On the Beach, that, you know, that it, it was no matter what else was going on, it sort of ended in some kind of probably a nuclear holocaust. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for giving us a movie that, that's thought-provoking, contemplative, beautiful, uh, lets me geek out massively. I'm, I'm really looking forward to a, a, a rewatch uh, after uh, hearing hearing from you. Um, you've uh, you've got a, an amazing pedigree of, of, uh, of films that you've worked on from... Uh, well, I, I can see in, in your office, E.T., Rocket Man. Uh, you, you said you showed me Jumanji and 300 uh, just around the corner at the, the start of our conversation. Um, do you want to do you want to talk about what's what's coming next? Uh, I have just started. I mean, literally, I'm two days into it. So, um, you know, and they and they they have a tendency sometimes to fall apart, even though I don't think this one will. It's a really great script. It's really fun. And uh and uh, and a really good group of people. So I'm I'm hoping everything works well. But it's it's arch it's archaeological. It's uh, it's about creating a lost uh, pre-Roman civilization. It's called the Lost City of D. It stars Sandra Bullock and uh, Channing Tatum. I'm really excited by it, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. That's Jim Bissell, and yes, let's get him physically to the Cosmic Shed to come talk about ET at some time in the future. That yes, is, please. That is nailed on certainty. I, I've got to say, I, I hope it came through. I really, really enjoyed talking to Jim, um, yeah. and the the balance of um, getting my geek on and and talking about the the, the engineering side of that, um, and um, him again opening my eyes a little bit to the the artistic side of the the movie. Uh, it was just an absolute pleasure. So thanks, Jim. Absolutely. And so we heard in that interview about the change of use for the base of the ship. It wasn't used for 3D printing, which Steve was clearly upset about. <laughs> but Ty, I know you had something to say about that. There well. is something I want to discuss, and it might be a bit of a major spoiler, but it is something that I kind of want to discuss with you. So if you haven't seen the film, maybe jump off at this point, but maybe you did for the yeah. So during production, actress Felicity Jones discovered she was pregnant and rather than jump off the film, they decided to work it into her character. Now, she's a scientist on board the Ether, and they've written it so that the captain, played by David Yellowway, the commander, is the father. Now, fraternizationing, fraternization with subordinates and, you know, workplace protocol aside, I'm interested in how this film would have ended if that wasn't part of the script, if she wasn't pregnant, because the film ends with um, Augustine sending them back to K-23, and it's just going to be her, her unborn child, and her husband. <laughs> That's not enough to repopulate humanity. If the film essentially signs off with, humanity's dead now, you guys enjoy a little you know your life on k23 but essentially humanity dies with you now i'd be interested to find out what the book how the book ends but did you guys 
feel that the film ended on uh, a moment of hope that they were going back? Or did you kind of read into, oh, we're all dead? It's a moment of slightly incestuous hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure that if, if, you, if you do the whole kind of reproductive planning and engineering sort of thing, then, then you, can, you can restart a civilization. I think the first few generations are going to be a little bit weird. Um, I, we, but we did assassin 33 AD before. Let's not get into <laughs> But wasn't, I think, I mean, Ty, I'm really glad you brought that up because I was going to say that, like, there's, there's multiple levels of, about, like, her being pregnant that even, that I had lots of, like, questions about because not only, like, okay, if you even ignore the bit about sort of the, the fraternization, as you so politely put it, um, What's interesting is that, I mean, the A, that she chose to remain pregnant, um, B, that she, you know, there's there's quite a sweet scene in the film that I really enjoyed, actually, where they've used um, something on board the spaceship, a scanner of some sort, which is definitely not built to do an ultrasound, but they do something akin to an ultrasound and they have, like, there's a really cute moment between her and her partner and, and one of the other people on the ship and, you know, they kind of look at the baby and things. Um, but then she also does choose to go out on a spacewalk when she's heavily pregnant, which I thought was kind of... And, I mean, even if you completely and absolutely ignore the perilous nature of going on a spacewalk... Um, especially a Hollywood spacewalk, which means that it's absolutely impossible to go outside the spaceship with um, N number of people and come back with <laughs> N number of people alive. It's always N minus one minimum. Um, uh, but, you know, just purely going out of a spaceship in space, the radiation that she would be exposed to would be significant and would very badly impact on a, on a child, especially considering how far along she is. So there were there were and 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 then there was also like I I wanted to know more about the sort of exobiology of what it'd be like to be pregnant in in low to no gravity how it would affect the growth of the fetus would she be able to have like you know and, and at the end of the film as Ty um, has already said you know she is now definitely going to have this baby on the spaceship um, where you know is she going to survive that there's literally no one else on the spaceship apart from her partner who as adept as he might be at many other things, is probably not fully trained in, in birthing yes. um, as a space commander. Um, and then, um, so yeah, I felt like that was, like, I just had so many questions about that. I was just like, ooh, <laughs> um, that was an interesting choice to just include as part of the film. And then, of course, the much bigger questions about sort of repopulation, etc. I did some... I did some reading about the plot and the synopsis just to see if there was stuff that we missed or that I'd missed. Um, what was interesting was that the, um, I seem to have completely forgotten this from the film, I must admit, but that there is another K-23 mission that is also supposed to be out there and it's a little bit dubious on whether it survived or not. So if you're looking for that nugget of hope, what you can decide to believe in is that that mission also lost communication. Maybe its antenna was knocked off, but it survived. And that mission was supposed to be a population. So it was um, to populate the planet as well as uh, to stock it. 
So maybe what we can all decide is that that, that mission, you know, maybe maybe they won't all survive. Maybe they'll go out on some spacewalks and they'll lose 3% of the population. Someone will go crazy. and That's a bit you know. risky that you would send a colonization ship before your <laughs> scout ship has even come back and kind of gone. Exactly. It's good. We're all good. Exactly. It's like they just launched it yeah, six but months the, later. Yeah. The the disaster is imminent and known, and and it, this is obviously. Is it though? Massively. We don't it's know. It's not. It's like we it happened know. a week ago, and no exactly. one saw it coming. So it's not like yeah. the I, ship I might it, have been on the pad ready to go. Well, no, because they sent the ship with a view to to helping back us up. So it must have been a a, a disaster that they saw coming, but has escalated in the, the the recent history in terms of that last scene it, it feels quite awkward to me if i don't know if that's the if a deliberate thing that they're trying to do with that last scene but it feels like they're sort of think you know i'm projecting into their heads but what feels like they're thinking is oh god <laughs> yeah. what i'm just gonna push these buttons because i can't deal with the situation i'm in now so i'm just gonna just yeah I mean, and also let's completely, I mean, you know, George Clooney very kindly gives them a new, he's mapped out their route, but we're completely ignoring the fact that they have potentially no fuel, um, minimal supplies, and, uh, you know, we'll have to somehow slingshot around the earth twice, not quite sure how, Um, but, you know, I mean, those are the things I was like, okay, you know, I mean, it, it, that was what very much annoyed me in Ad Astra, especially in the return journey, as it were. Yeah, I, d- I don't really understand why all three of them went out on the spacewalk. That made literally no sense to me. But uh, I think, Steve, we need to go to the second interview. Um, can you set this one up for us? Explain what this is all about. OK, so I, I said earlier that there were kind of three sides to the, the movie, the, the artistic side, the, the science side, and to me, a very clearly separate engineering side, which really um, got me excited. So... Um, what what I saw when I was watching that movie, um, in addition to the ah science and the ooh art side of it, um, was um, a, a spacecraft that could be built now. I think there is nothing that I saw um, about the ether that isn't kind of current or very near future tech. Um, that's, that's aside from the politics and the funding side of it, which um, is is one of the biggest hinders. Well, it was it was one of the biggest um, promoters of space development back a, a, a few decades ago, right? Um, but but now it's it because you need to fund this sort of thing. You, you need the political will to to fund it on a, a governmental level, or or you need Elon to come along and do it anyway. Um, so um, the, the the ship, uh, the structure of the ship, um, we'll, we'll post some pictures uh, on the uh, show notes. But um, there's kind of a spine to it, which is fairly conventional. It's it's sections of kind of pods uh, stuck together, and then truss sections uh, connecting it. Uh, th- there's a, a few kind of big curved. There's a shield and a solar array, and behind one of them is is this sort of forest uh, or farming pod which which uh yeah tushna said could probably be some sort of oxygen generation as well um but the, the the big sort of engineering part is um what jim referred to as the baton the um the the two arms spinning around so that at each end of it you you get artificial gravity centrifugal 
uh, or centripetal acceleration, depending on your reference frame. There you go. Don't at me. The the, the design of that structure um, is just so reminiscent of uh, some some current work um, that uh, a colleague of mine at the University of Bristol is doing about generative design. So if you look at the bat on the boom, um, it's this kind of organic looking truss style swoopy structure. Um, both um, the outside and the inside, there's some, some good shots um, there. I spoke to uh, Professor Ben Hicks, uh, head of the Engineering Systems and Design Institute uh, and the Design and Manufacturing Futures Lab at the University of Bristol, um, and asked him what he thought about that. When we first um, heard about this, we were really keen to to really look, understand whether, I guess, you know, four things. Do the tools exist whereby you could generate such a design? And I think we've, we've covered that, and the answer is yes, they do. Uh, can we design such a craft? And the, the answer is yes. And in, in testament to, to Jim and his team, the actual design, that the, the first iteration we've got is, is not far removed from, from, from the design in the... Um, using the film, we can then do extend and optimize that design further, and it'd be great to share those with you and, and with Jim. And then the the third aspect or fourth aspect is about is I touched on earlier is around can you actually make it? And I think that's where some interesting challenges um, are, lie for, for for research, but for for um, probably for, for space travel in the future. Actually, how are these? such vehicles actually constructed and maintained in space and i know um, from speaking to yourself and others and what i've, what I've seen in the film that they use additive manufacturing technologies um which give you great design freedom that's that's 3d printing for the layman among us yeah what i can also share is some other examples of applications where we have applied um applied this tool set and, and come up with some really what you might be described as very futuristic looking forms or structures uh, which aren't necessarily always to everyone's taste and, and it's you know a step change or radical change from perhaps the products they know but but ultimately is, is the future um, with these sorts of technologies it is about creating optimal technologies in terms of performance or solutions and also I think the, the aesthetics so one of the things we could we can perhaps share and I, I don't know whether under current COVID conditions there is such a thing as a red carpets anymore and, and you know, film launches. Clearly, this film has been launched. Is one one of the things we we've, we've done is, is to um, design use the generative technology to design a, a high heeled shoe um, for an Italian um, company. And it would be interesting to see if we have those designs to see if whoever's you know the, one of the, the female actresses, in, perhaps in the, nothing to stop the males either, of course, um, that that we could produce a shoe that they can um, in in an ether shoe using the same sort of technologies. Um, because again, from our perspective, you know, at the, at the university, in terms of can you make it, you know, we we have three D printing, as you call it, or additive manufacturing technologies that can have a have a limited bed or size, so we can build a shoe, but we couldn't build a fifty meter um, uh, a spacecraft in our labs. That'd be great fun. <laughs> where where are we in, in in terms of being able to print, say, 
a, a, a large spaceship part or, or a complicated assembly like a, a communications array? There are a number of examples of um, there's a, a foot a footbridge, and I can send you the link, which has been three um, D printed. I think that's uh, in Holland, and and that was three D printed by having a, a a robot, you know, one starting at I, yeah, either side of the, the the river, one on each bank, and actually three D printing the structure and and moving along that structure in place, not not three D printing the components. Yeah, this absolutely in in place. So this is doing it on site, which I imagine is the sort of technology you would need that sort of approach to do something in space. And of course, you know, if you were to 3D print, you, know, you think of, you have to think about the impact of the atmospheric conditions on um, the quality and variability of that process. They're inextricably linked. You can't fully design it until you know how you're gonna make it. So you'd, you'd have to design accordingly, whether that structure was in sections, or if you want a single 50 meter structure, then you would be looking to some sort of technology, um, such as the, 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 you know, the robots, um, uh, you know, the cougar robots or similar, um, actually having a, the, the technology on their end effect and being able to, you know, progress if you want along that structure as, as they, um, they they fabricate it. But of course, in, in in what a lot of people don't perhaps realise is that the additive manufacturing technologies or three D printing has been around in different forms for for many decades. And if you look at you know some of us may have may have wondered how oil rigs for example how if you look at the concrete um if you want the, the legs or structures that they sit on how those are constructed and they are constructed via continuous pore concrete so effectively a a um, device that actually sits on top and pours each layer but but is like a helix it just keeps going around so you have to pour wet concrete onto you know curing con- concrete but you can't leave it too long so these things crawl around and construct it's a continuous pour of that you know sort of a 50 meter structure 60 meter structure so th- these things are possible the uh, events in the movie were around 2050 uh, are, are we on track for making something like that yeah I, I think if you look across the 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 a lot of these things the technology i think the the, the, the suite of technologies that we would need you could identify the existence of those technologies or capabilities in different fields, whether that be in sort of the energy sector, looking at things like decommissioning in very hazardous environments. You know, the, the manufacturing technology, the robotic capability is all there. I think the reality is it's, it's probably a cost barrier. And I guess as, as a race in society, you know, the, the, the we do things when we have to. If you look at the, the sort of global response to the pandemic, one would never have conceived of the lockdowns and where we are, but as a, as a global society we, we, we've you know in a race we, we've we've done what is necessary so i think the, these technologies are available they are being used it's, it's whether there's the financial capacity um, and need i guess to to actually do it um and i guess the other thing is is that i would say is that the you know a lot of the things that we take for granted things like you know air travel etc and that's no reference to the, the, the current situation but but a lot of the technologies and the materials have been really optimized over many decades so perform incredibly well they're incredibly lightweight again the the, the quality the, the process control on those technologies and those parts is incredibly high and again we all take that for granted so you know there are what we call dominant designs which are very very optimized so if you if you had to do something and do it quickly 
you generally turn towards those dominant designs and existing designs and, and utilize those than perhaps go for something disruptive in the first instance. But it, it is possible, um, most certainly. And um, I, I, hope, I hope I'm young enough to enjoy you know, space travel when we finally get there with the, the sort of race that's going on with SpaceX and you know, Elon Musk and, and everyone. Is there anything you'd like to point listeners towards? We've, we've done our best to have an engaging um, website interface. And, and, and as a lab, we are, and, and division, we're very much, and indeed the whole university is very much around, you know, the fundamental science, but actually delivering impact. There's some, some fantastic examples of, you know, futuristic, you might say in many cases, of, you know, tools to enable citizens and school children to design cities of the future. A project we have at the moment called Project Clean Access, sponsored by the Royal Academy of Engineering, that is is looking to compile a toolkit of low-cost, easy-to-fabricate solutions to allow society to transition back to whatever the new normal is going to be, but back into their sort of working and social environments um, post the pandemic. So I would really say, yes, please do come onto the website um, at at, uh, DMF dash lab.co.uk or esdi.ac.uk please get in touch we'd love to hear from you and any ideas any thoughts if you want to get involved um please contact us we're probably going to publish this episode before this happens but um professor ben uh, and team at the university of bristol are working on um their design using their real world engineering design tools uh, to, to, to see what they'd come up with uh, against um, Jim's uh, artistic vision of that. I'm really, really excited to see that. And when we get that, um, we'll, we'll publish it all over our social media and add it to the show notes. Just I wanted to thank Jim and Ben uh, for talking to us and uh, yeah, just really enjoyed that. When I was watching this film, I was thinking of Sunshine because Sunshine has a multinational crew it's led by like a Japanese captain, you have a Chinese biologist, you have, um, you know, Brits, Americans, you have everyone on board. And this was, appeared to be, even though David Yellowo and Felicity Jones are British actors and Damien uh, Bichet is Mexican, it seemed to be a quote unquote American crew. But there are also lots of technology things that seem to echo sunshine, like the rudimentary holodeck, where they were kind of had video loops that would kind of, be projected around them so it's like they were at their family table or hanging with their siblings or sisters and it was kind of like in sunshine where they're in the rudimentary holodeck cube but it's like they're on the beach or they're standing in a forest and it was just it was very interesting it's kind of like they had went gone to the same brain trust and gone what would a spaceship look like in the 2040s even though um sunshine was made what over 10 years ago now yeah. Do you know, I think we should probably do Sunshine at some point because there is a lot to be said about it. Um, Can we get my mate Brian Yeah, on? let's get Brian Cox on. Oh, God. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> He's never going to come now. Uh, interviewing Brian Cox about something <laughs> amazing. Um, but no. Stars! <laughs> um, but uh, I, think, well, I, I think there's an awful lot to be said, which is positive and negative about Sunshine as well. Um, I, d- I have to say, well, and you've just said that about the, the the holodeck. I did actually really love that in the Midnight Sky. I thought it was really nice. Yeah, 
that was a really sweet touch. I thought it was a really special touch. I just, I guess, um, I completely agree that one of the good things about Sunshine was that international crew. Um, I think that was like, I remember both Sunshine and, um, God, what was that film? I think it was just, I was going to say about the core. I think it was called The Core, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. With um, Hilary um, Swank. Swank and Stanley yeah, Tucci. Right. Yeah, Royal I mean, those, they both, they're kind of both like in the same period in my head. <laughs> I don't know if they were actually came out within a few years of each other, but <laughs> vaguely in the same. And that was like global disaster crew films, as I thought of it. And while I hated the science in both of them and they were awful, <laughs> what I did really like was that international crew aspect, yeah. especially with Sunshine. Okay, let's, um, let's do Sunshine. But... I... Um, <laughs> Sorry, just uh, yeah. with this with this film with Midnight Sky, I did I did think it was a very big spaceship for five people to be knocking around on it, yeah. and and it just felt like there was great potential for um, scary things in spaceships. Was it much thing, bigger than their know? ship in The Martian? And it's about a similar crew size, and they're only going to Mars instead of Jupiter. I reckon I I don't know maybe, and and this is something that it might just be in my like the the way I saw it, but The Martian. It felt like just one of the big rockets, like a really big rocket, that kind of ship, whereas this felt much more like the, yeah, I guess what I describe as a generation ship or a ship that you can just, you know. Yeah, there's a few things there. One, uh, I mean, the the radius of the arms um, on a, a diagram that I, I saw was only, I think, 50, 50 metres or so. Thank you. Um, so it, it, it's not huge, I don't think. I think the, the kind of forest-looking bit might might look huger than it is um and we don't know anything about the propulsion so maybe the length of it is something to do Fuel. with yeah with that yeah um and they're out there for two or four years depending on how long it takes them to get to and from cheaper to from i mean, I mean so, I'm, I'm guessing they didn't just go tang you're it to the planet <laughs> you know the moon and and, and the <laughs> perception i got from the manufacturing tech that we we talked about um, is that it was probably uh, largely built and assembled in orbit. So the, the size of it for takeoff and things is, is kind of irrelevant. Any final thoughts on the midnight sky? It really hit my engineering buttons. I think that the scientific side of it is um, reasonably irrelevant to the plot uh, and thoroughly excusable. Uh, and I thought that the movie was beautiful contemplative uh just generally lovely uh and if you disagree with that you're watching it wrong no i thought it was good fun it was it was it it wasn't fun it was an enjoyable sci-fi watch that i feel might have just been a little bit derivative of what has gone before it but was a nice mediation on death and loneliness which i felt was all what we needed at christmas time I, I did I did enjoy it. Uh, I thought perhaps, as I said, it was a bit too indulgent of a film, um, but I was willing to allow for quite a bit of it. Um, I think the bit I enjoyed the most is that it, the idea of living uh, somewhere where Jupiter dominates the sky, I think that would be quite amazing. I think that would be quite wonderful if we live close enough to Jupiter and maybe someday we'll have a base on Io or one of the actual known moons of Jupiter and um, it would be quite amazing to live to have a human base somewhere where Jupiter fills the sky at midnight or at all other times. That sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to the sequel, which is uh, 
presumably called Jupiter Ascending or something. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Jupiter Ascending is a great film. Let's do that. <laughs> it's got dragons wearing leather jackets. That's all I demand from my films. Dragons wearing leather it's jackets. The only, it's the only time I thought Eddie Redmayne really needed to chill. Like he really needed to That's chill. That's his best performance. Everything else is just kind of like a line of blandness, but that one is off the fucking chain. But while you're doing all that, your own life is just slipping away. That's why I have to contact them. Before it's too late. I would also like to thank Jim and Professor Ben for talking to Steve and Steve for talking to them and Tushner and Ty for talking to me. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks, everybody. See you later. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.